2, 12 through 18, and uh, we're continuing our series in the, uh, in the book of Philippians. We're going to talk this morning about, about living as an apprentice of Jesus. Um, you know, the whole field of apprenticeship had kind of declined for a long time. You know, the, the way if you wanted to get, be successful in life, you uh, graduated from high school, you went to college, you got a job, you worked hard, and in time, you enjoyed the fruits of your labor. But our culture has changed, and because our culture has changed, the whole concept of apprenticeship has changed as well. And apprenticeship has been much in the news lately, uh, not the least of which is Mike Rowe on the show Dirty Jobs. Some of you may have seen this, this show. It, it makes me glad I do what I do, you know, just, just saying that. Uh, I don't want to be where he is on the left. Um, but one of the things Mike Rowe said as a result of his work with Dirty Jobs is that there are some jobs that people in America have simply forgotten how to do. And if you can figure out how to do them, you can make a lot of money. There are other jobs uh, right here in America that people just don't want to do. And if you can learn how to do them and hire the right people, you can make a lot of money doing them. And it all gets back to the, to the notion of apprenticeship. And what I find interesting is that, that that notion of apprenticeship has become much talked about in some of the business magazines like Forbes, Fortune, uh, Business Week, and so on. Because some people are graduating from high school and they're saying, I don't know if I'm ready to take on tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt. I may learn something, a trade, be apprenticed to somebody, and then think about what I'm going to do. We, we saw this with our son, Jared. He, uh, he didn't want to go to college, didn't want to complete college, and so he uh, apprenticed himself to Jim Nyhoff, uh, who was a builder here in town, who, by the way, just texted me. It showed up on my, on my watch about, about two minutes ago. I don't know what he's texting me about. I didn't tell him I was going to mention him. But, uh, but Jared learned how to do tile through Jim Nyhoff. Moves out to Seattle. Uh, is mentored by another contractor out in Seattle. He teaches him four other aspects of the carpentry uh, building trade. And within about two years, he became a general contractor for a large project in Dallas. It all happened through, through the idea of apprenticeship. Now, what I want to say to you this morning is that when you come to Christ, it is God's will for each of you to have an apprenticeship relationship with an older believer, an older follower of Jesus. It's called discipleship. You can call it mentorship, mentoring, spiritual coaching, spiritual mentoring, spiritual apprenticeship. It's discipleship. And it's, it's the Lord's will that, that we encounter that at some point in our life. If I was to ask you to raise your hand and, and ask how many of you were discipled as a younger, I won't ask you to do this, but... How many of you were discipled as a younger believer? Probably a lot of people would, you say, would say, probably, I, not, I wasn't, and I wish I had been. God's love is this whole matter of discipleship, one person passing his or her faith on to another person. But in a very real sense, when you come to Christ, you are apprenticed directly to Jesus. You're apprenticed directly to Jesus. And it's as if the risen Christ says to you, when you come to Christ, 
I want you to follow me. I want you to learn from me. I want you to do your life the way I would if I was doing your life. Now, now hear that for a second. How would, how would Jesus do your life if he were doing your life? Some of you work in the corporate world. How would he work with the people in your division? Some of you work as a small business. How would he work with your clients and vendors? How would Jesus do your life if Jesus were in your life? That's how he wants you to do your life, as an, as a, an apprentice of the risen Christ, an apprentice of him. Now, when we come to this part of Philippians, you'll remember that Paul has just said in Philippians 2 that Jesus was in heaven, he humbled himself, he went back to heaven, now he has the name that's above every other name. And in the very next verse, it says, therefore, therefore. And the idea is that since Jesus has been raised, how should we live our lives? In apprenticeship to him. So we're going to look at this passage, 2 through 18. We're going to see three facets to apprenticeship to Jesus. It's going to involve personal obedience. It's going to involve unified relationships. It's going to involve positive emotions, those three things. Now, apprenticeship to Jesus may mean other things in other passages, but Paul deals with these three things, and he has a point in this. Because the personal obedience part is our upward relationship with God, our unified relationships part is our outward relationships with people, and our positive emotions are our inward relationship with ourselves. And Paul's whole point in this passage is going to be this. We are called into a whole life apprenticeship to Jesus, an apprenticeship that covers everything, everything in our life, of which these three are three representative things of the entirety of the whole. So um, let's begin <clears throat> at the beginning with obedience. In our actions, we are commanded to practice an empowered obedience. Paul says it this way, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more also in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I just want you to notice the connection that this verse has to discipleship. Because, Paul, uh, because Jesus commanded obedience as a part of discipleship in Matthew 28, 19. And then in verse 20, he says, the power comes through the fact that I'm with you always. So, Paul and Jesus are not talking about your do-it-yourself obedience. Um, they're not talking about uh, an obedience where you, you, it's a DIY thing. I, I got to do this myself. It's an energized obedience. It's an empowered obedience. So look at Paul's command. Look at Paul's command. Work out your salvation. Let me tell you what this does not mean. It doesn't mean that I work my way to eternal life. It doesn't mean that I, I store up a bunch of good deeds, and when I get to heaven, those good deeds will offset my bad deeds, and God will say, well, okay, your good deeds sort of outweigh the bad. I'm going to accept you into heaven. You've worked your way into my presence. Now, I feel like I have to say that because if you ask the average Christian, 
on, the, on what basis are you going to heaven? A lot of people would say, well, you know, I, I feel like I've, I haven't been that bad. And, and I've, I've done some good things. And so I'm, I'm thinking that God might let me in. That's a wrong view of how a person enters into eternal life. Paul is not talking about salvation through self-effort. What does Paul mean? Paul means this. I want you to take your package of benefits called salvation, and I want you to work out how to weave those into every facet of your life. Work it out. Work out how you're going to go about doing it. All right, so give, let me give you an illustration. We all know who won the Super Bowl. Still in mourning. That's why I still keep on saying that. Bill Belichick and the Patriots. Now, I want you to imagine that Bill Belichick has a conversation with his team at the beginning of the season. He says, guys, you've all made the team. You've all made the team. You're on the team. I want you to work out your position. Work it out. Work out how you use your position in conjunction with the guy next to you. Work it out. Work it out in community. Work it out. Memorize the different plays. Work out your position. Work it out. Do it. Now, he's not telling them, look, work it out and you'll be on the team. He's saying, you're on the team. Work it out so that we win. Work it out so that we do well. And that's the idea that Paul is using when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work on your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> I say um, all this about working it out in community because the term work out is in plural form. You know, I say this a fair amount. The plural form is y'all work it out. <laughs> y'all do this. It's a, it's a plural command. You do it and you do it in the context of community. And in this sense, the Christian life is more like football than it is like golf or tennis. If I, assuming I'm not playing doubles, but if, if I'm playing tennis, it is an individual sport. It's just, it's me and my opponent. If I'm playing golf, even though I might be in a foursome, it's an individual sport. It's me against the other four people in my foursome. Some sports are individual sports. You can't do football as an individual sport. You, you know, notice how, you know, when somebody's interviewed at the end of a, of a winning game, they don't say, yes, I'm awesome. I'm an amazing quarterback. I'm so gifted. It's all about me. Nobody says that because they know it's all about the team. A winning quarterback knows that if his, his line is not protecting him, he's in big trouble. When you think about your faith in Christ, working out your salvation in community, it is a team sport. It is not an individual sport. It's one of the reasons why, you know, I appreciate what Mike is doing with small groups because we just are totally convinced that if you're going to grow in your relationship with Jesus, you have to be in, involved in community. So when Mike says grab him, don't tackle him, okay? Don't tackle him, but grab him. And, and figure out how you can get plugged into community. Now, as we do this, Paul commands an essential attitude. He commands us to do this with fear and trembling. A lot of people are bothered by that. Like, fear and trembling, like, work it out in fear and trembling. What, what does that mean? You know, you don't see winning basketball players exhibiting fear and trembling. 
I don't think I've ever seen Tom Brady exhibit fear and trembling. Uh, he's not referring to being obsessed with anxiety. When Paul uses that term fear and trembling in the New Testament, it is a figure of speech that refers to authenticity. It refers to authenticity. It refers to a genuineness in your relationships. It refers to an openness about what's really going on inside your heart. He's saying work it out in community by being authentic in your community. If you're not doing well, talk about that. If you're struggling with a particular sin, confess that. If you're joyful because things are going well in your life, talk about that. You're working it out in community in, with, with a sense of genuineness and with authenticity. I was reading an, an article recently about why some people who are in their 20s get frustrated with the church. And one of the things they said was that it seems like people in the church are never genuine about what's really going on in their lives. They're not bringing their real self into community. Well, Paul's saying, if you're going to grow working out your salvation, you've got to bring your real self into community with, with other people. Uh, you'll notice that Paul gives us two motivations for this. Our first motivation is God's love. Okay, so here's the command. Work out your salvation in community with authenticity. That's the command. Now, two motivations. Motivation number one is the love of God. Here's what he says. God is at work within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's a statement about energy, but it's also a statement about love. It's a statement about energy, but at its root is love. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, this is nobody that I know. It's just an example that I pulled off the internet. But here's a dad teaching his son how to walk. Now, our son is teaching our grandson how to walk. And we got a video a while back uh, where our grandson has a little push toy and he's walking behind the push toy, pushing the push toy. And our son is, my, our, our daughter-in-law is taking the video, our son is pushing the push toy. And my son is literally by his side, and then he's on the other side, and then he's in front of them, and then he's, then he's behind them. He's willing and he's working so that my grandson can learn how to walk. And there's his picture. Look at how cute he is. My son is, is behind, he's by his side, he's in front of him, he's willing and he is working because my son's pleasure is to see his son walk. And so when you think about God willing and working on your behalf, what I want you to think about is your Abba Father is not standing up there thinking, let's see how long it takes before she falls. Yep, it happened. I knew it would happen. So tired of seeing this. That's never the case. It's never the case. God is like a great dad who is beside you, behind you, before you, helping you learn how to walk, willing and working for your good pleasure. Now, do you see God that way? 
Or do you see yourself as being a spiritual orphan? Where you're thinking, oh man, I gotta gut it out. I gotta, I gotta obey my own strength because God sure's not helping me and I'm I don't, ugh, so hard. I hate this. Spiritual orphans get sick of the Christian life because they, they don't feel like they have any power and they don't have the love of the person who wants to empower them. So to grow, you have to, you have to see God in a different way. He is willing and he is working for his good pleasure. Why? Because he's like my, my son. He wants to see his son learn, how, learn to walk. You know, if my, my son never decided he wanted to learn to walk, that would not glorify mom and dad, you know? But as he learns how to walk, mom and dad feel excited, proud. Now, the sec- a second motivation, it's not just love for God, but it's also love for others. Notice how Paul addresses the Philippians. They are his beloved, his beloved. I have to tell you, in the ancient world, that was a very intimate term to use. You think of, of the words that, that, we, that we have, where we, that we use for, for friendships. There's a lot of them in, in, uh, in, in English. Mate, buddy, amigo, pal, comrade, dude, bestie, brother, brother from another mother, and so on and so on. We have a lot of terms for friendship. This term, beloved, is not like one of those terms. It is a very intimate term. He loves them. He loves them like a dad loves his spiritual children. He loves them like a brother. He loves them as a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. So what's motivating them to work out their salvation in fear and trembling? Well, God's love for them does, but also Paul's love for them does. I remember being in college, and I was discipled by um, a guy named Pat Dillon. And uh, Pat said, you can call me anytime, anytime. So one day my freshman year, um, I, I went through a pretty hard, pretty hard situation. I called him up. Pat, you said I could call. Pat said, I'll be there in 10 minutes. Wow, showed up, out of concern for me. Knocked on my, on my, my, my dorm door. Welcome to men. He said, let me pray for you. Just, just thought you need somebody to be with you. And I learned pr- pretty soon, you know, with that, with that situation that if, if I was going to be discipled by, by Pat Dillon, Pat Dillon was going to show love for me in, in the growth process. Well, that, that's highly motivational. Pat didn't come in and say, well, did you mess up? Did you screw something up here? Didn't do that. Pat said, I'm here for you. How can I pray for you? Motivation to work out your salvation with genuineness and authenticity in community is helped when you have unconditional love relationships with other members of the body of Christ. One more thing I want you to notice in, in this verse about working out your salvation. Paul creates a culture, hear me on this, a culture of honor, a culture of honor. Uh, notice what he says, um, just if you guys have always obeyed. Now, now pa- Paul could have said, I'm, I'm apart from you guys, you guys are probably going to mess this up. <laughs> You're probably going to screw this up. He doesn't do that. 
Paul assumes the best. He assumes their obedience. He assumes the purest motives. He doesn't say, you screw-ups, you slackers. I know if, that, if I'm not there micromanaging your behaviors, you're not going to do anything. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, you, you guys have a history of obedience. I, I honor you in that. If you want to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, it really helps to be in a community where there's a culture of honor. Now, let's jump back to get, look at the big picture for a second. To live as an apprentice of Jesus means that we practice sustained obedience. It's not a do-it-yourself obedience. It's not a, an obedience through self-effort. It's an obedience that is empowered empowered by the God of the universe, but also helped by the unconditional love relationships of the people who are around you as they create a culture of honor. So one of the things that we are really trying hard to do, especially in the year 2017, is to create a culture of honor at Grace Community Church among our staff, at Grace Community Church among our small groups, among our elders, so that every part of Grace Community Church has a feel about it of a culture of honor. So I want you to go back to this idea about learning how to walk. It is the glory of a father or the glory of a mother to teach their child to walk. That's the glory of a child. It's, it's the joy of learning how to walk. And you, you, you know what happens when a child takes that venture out, and he's smiling, smiling so much you think, don't smile that much, you're going to fall. And then, and then he, he does fall, and what does the dad do, or the mom do? The mom picks him right back up and celebrates that they can do it again. And that's what happened when he fell when we were with him. He falls. Well, he's not worried about the fall, not feeling any shame about the fall. Pick right back up and continue on, on your way. That leads us to the second thing that we want to look at. Not only is this is an upward thing, you know, empowered relationships, but now there's a dimension outward, horizontal, where there's um, our relationships with people. And what we want to talk about here is an empowered unity. Verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Now, I want you to remember that when this letter was written, uh, it was written to be read in the church in Philippi. It was obviously read in the Greek language. Now, the Bible that they were using in Philippi was the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. So when they heard Paul's words in his New Testament book, they would think about words that they knew out of the Old Testament. When Paul talks about grumbling and disputing, they immediately thought about the book of the Exodus in the Greek language. Because the word grumbling and disputing is used often in the book of Exodus and in the book of Numbers to describe the Israelites' rebellion against God. They grumbled against God. They disputed against God. The word grumbling is a very distinctive verb 
in the Greek language. So it's a, it's a very colorful verb. It sounds like what it is. It sounds like grumble, 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 grumble. That, that, that's what the word sounds like in, in, in the Greek. So a very distinctive word. So they're thinking back to, okay, back to the, back to the, old, the old Testament, and they're thinking about grumbling. When you grumble, what you're doing is you are murmuring your discontent in a passive-aggressive way. So think about times when you've grumbled in the past. You murmur your discontent. You're quiet. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Somebody else murmurs back. Your murmuring gets a little bit louder. You murmur, murmur, murmur. Now you're, you're feeling entitled. You're feeling angry like somebody screwed you around. Murmuring a little bit more. Now you're got a really bad attitude, more murmuring. It's a passive-aggressive rebellion that generates a sense of angry entitlement. Now you feel entitled to your anger, like you deserve to be angry, like somebody really messed you around. And so the people of Israel are doing this, and they fantasize. I've mentioned this before in this series. They fantasize about, hey, remember when we were in, we were, we were in Egypt, how awesome that was? Like, I know we were slaves, but, but we had... We had melons, and we had garlic, and leeks, and cucumbers, and we had fish. It was, it, was, it was amazing. Was it amazing in Egypt? No, they were slaves. But their grumbling made them feel entitled to a fantasy world of justified anger. And it was, it was like a narcotic that made them want to be more grumbly and more angry. And and that kind of grumbling crushes, it crushes serenity, and God has to deal with it. So, um, lest you think, well, I I don't do that, I just want you to remember the disciples did this. Remember the the last last supper, Jesus is pouring out his heart to his best friends, and the disciples get into this little argument. Hey, guys, you know, in the kingdom, I'm going to be better than you guys are, just saying, Somebody else says, no, no, I control the money. I'm going to be better than you are. No, you guys are all, you guys are all wrong. I, I'm, I'm the better leader. And pretty soon there's this big argument the night before Jesus is going to die. Big argument. That's grumbling. That's disputing. And if the disciples do this, I promise you, this is something that you are vulnerable to. Even after the resurrection uh, the disciples were vulnerable to this. Remember that Peter is restored as the leader of the apostles in John chapter 21. Restored to leadership. Everything's good now. And Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. And Peter's feeling pretty good. Like, okay, cool, I'm going to die. A heroic death. It's going to be awesome. And then he whips around and says, okay, what about John? What kind of death is he going to die? As cool as mine? There's a little grumbly entitlement that's going on with Peter in that situation. Look, if the disciples are vulnerable to an entitled sense of grumbling, then you and I are vulnerable to that that as well. And Paul is warning against that. And what Paul is is saying is, don't, don't be that so that something else takes place. Do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And he says in 16, holding fast to the word of life. Now, Paul takes that language directly out of Deuteronomy 32 verses 4 and 5. 
But whereas this language is used in the negative sense in Deuteronomy 32, Paul switches it around, uses it in the positive sense in this verse right here. In the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, the people of Israel were definitely God's children, but they, were, they weren't acting like it. Uh, they'd been redeemed at the, exo at, at the Exodus, but they didn't act as if they were God's nation. Therefore, they were not experiencing life. They were pursuing idols which would lead to death. And Paul says, if you do pr pursue unity, then you will be blameless and innocent children of God. Not, not like the Israelites, you'll be different than them. Holding fast to the word of, of life. So here's, here's what he's saying. Unity brings life to groups. Unity brings life to a church. It brings life to a family. It brings life to brothers and sisters. I use this story a lot. If you get tired of it, just tell me. I'll stop using it. But 2004, Cindy and I start to celebrate recovery with a handful of people here at Grace. And pretty soon, our kids are saying, what's changed about you guys? Our adult children were saying that. Our almost adult children were saying that. What's changed about you guys? The enhanced unity with Cindy and I, I will tell you, led to an enhanced unity with our kids. We feel very privileged that our kids are very, very unified, love doing life together as, as adults. But here's the thing, when, when, you, when you pursue a proactive, non-grumbling unity, it generates life to groups. Uh, here's another, another result, another result is that it generates not just life, but light. He says, you'll be this in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I want you to think about how light works. Different places require different lights. If you go to a nice romantic restaurant, you want a certain kind of light. That, that picture shows the kind of light you might like. Not too bright, but bright enough so that you can see your food, right? But if you go to the dentist's office, you want a bright light, bright enough so that he can or she can peer into the recesses of your mouth and see what's healthy or what's not healthy. Different places require different kinds of light. I'm told that there, there's this thing among, among 